Today's episode is sponsored by Tego. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tego and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top Medico legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And today's episode is The Heat Is On, where we discuss HIPEC, hypothermic intraperitoneal chemotherapy with special guest Dr. Ed Pilling. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Dr. Ed Pilling is a staff specialist anaesthetist at the Princess Alexandra Hospital in Brisbane. He has an interest in colorectal surgery and ERAS. Ed recently closed the curtain on a very successful virtual conjoined ASA Queensland ACE conference as co-convener of the committee. And outside of work, Ed enjoys cooking and tries to soak up as much sunshine as he can to make up for a childhood in rainy England. Ed, thanks for joining us on Deep Breath. Thanks for having me. Right, so let's start with the most obvious question to most of our listeners and indeed ourselves. What on earth is HIPEC? Yeah, well, good question. So HIPEC stands for hypothermic intraperitoneal chemotherapy uh, and it's a process in which heated chemotherapy is pumped directly into the abdomen after surgery under general anesthesia. Okay, cool. Okay, so now we kind of know the basics of what a HIPEC is, <laughs> we're going to start right back at the beginning. So um, presumably this is for cancer. What kind of cancers tend to be uh, treated with this procedure? Um, so the, the most common ones we do at the PI are pseudium peritoni and colorectal metastases, but it's also used for ovarian and gastric cancers as well okay. with isolated peritoneal metastases. It's also used sometimes as a palliative treatment um, for patients with malignant ascites. And it's been shown to improve quality of life and survival for certain cancer patients. Okay. And this is only offered at certain uh, centres, is that correct? Like uh, where I work, we don't do it. I don't think no. Kate has it where she works. I'd so. never even heard of it before we, <laughs> so <is this laughs> before we organised this. Yeah, certain surgeons have an interest in or... Yeah, yeah. so there's only a few centres in Australia that do it. I think pretty much one in each of the main states, okay. Um, okay. the larger states anyway. Um, and yeah, the PA hospital is the Queensland Centre. Okay, okay, cool. All right. What exactly is happening? So what are the surgeons actually doing during the procedure? Okay, so the first part of the procedure is cytoreductive surgery, um, and that's basically removing all of the visible tumour that the surgeons can see, um, and they grade the success of that based on the size of the, or the pieces of tumour that are left, essentially. Okay. Mm-hmm. That procedure is called the sugar baker technique, which is, involves a removal of normally the right hemicolon, the spleen, the gallbladder, the greater and lesser momentum, and also then the stripping of the peritoneum, depending on where the cancer spread to as, you know, decides how much peritoneum needs to be um, stripped Mm. and they also strip the surface of the liver and in females remove the uterus and the ovaries um, and also sometimes the rectum just just depending on how advanced the the cancer is basically and where it's where it's locally invaded I suppose. My goodness that sounds like it's potentially very 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 big surgery. Yeah so it's it there is really a, a quite a wide spectrum depending on 
the amount of or the tumor burden essentially mm. in the abdomen as mm. to as to whether you, know, you could be doing quite a small procedure that might only take a couple of hours mm. or you could be doing a huge procedure that's going to take all day mm. and may require um, you know extra specialty other surgical specialties not just colorectal surgeons mm, yeah okay mm. all right so you've got the cytoreduction segment of the procedure and then what happens after that yeah, so after they've finished the, the cytoreductive surgery and we've made sure that, that um, we've got hemostatic control, we then start to infuse um, hot chemotherapy through a hypothermic um, Belmont pump, which some of you may be familiar with that we use for um, rapid infusions in some centres. Oh, yeah, um, okay. It's a very similar one, but it just goes up to a higher temperature. Okay. Um, the chemotherapy is heated to between 20, uh, 42 and 43 degrees, mm. um, and then it's pumped into the abdomen sucked back out and recirculated. Mm. The pump's set at a thousand mils per minute and we do that for the duration of the hyperthermic chemotherapy depends on the type of chemo that we're using. So the most common one that we use um, for pseudomyxoma exoma is mitomycin C mm-hmm. and we infuse that just for, for an hour and, and then basically stop. But for uh, mesothelioma, for example, or for gynecological malignancies, mm. um, we actually use cisplatin. And that has a, because it's more toxic, it has a more complicated infusion protocol. I have a, an unusual question, I apologise. Is there a reason that they put the chemotherapeutic agent in and then take it out and recirculate it? Is there a reason that they don't just leave it in? Oh, it's to keep it. It's to keep it hot. Excellent. Yeah. Okay, so good. So it's going back through the pump and it's being heated again and then pumped back into Perfect. the patient. Perfect. That's fantastic. I suspected, but I wanted to check. And, and part, the most important part of the procedure is to have someone to stir it within the abdomen as well. Oh, jeez. Um, to be <laughs> oh, uh, okay. well mixed, otherwise you end up with, with cold periods. And um, mm. the bane of my existence when I'm doing the chemotherapy is that the suction catheters always get blocked oh, and yeah. stuck up against the sides of the abdomen and then the pump alarms and sad faces everywhere do you actually so you're actually the one running the chemo right okay yeah Yeah. i didn't realize that okay all right and forgive my curiosity how does one stir chemotherapy in one's abdomen what's the process that's involved there so i think the amount of stirring depends on um the surgical trainee involved okay (laughs) um but essentially they're wearing like you know I think triple layer of gloves. So they put mm. a special, normally they're wearing two gloves and then they put an over glove on top. Mm. And essentially they're just making sure there are no pools of fluid that aren't, that are getting cold. Mm. Um, and then I think they sort of walk the bowel as well. Okay. Um, right, just okay. to make sure that wow. it's all being covered essentially. Okay. All right. So you, so someone makes up the chemotherapy for you, obviously, and then you're running it, but you're in charge of running it. And you have to give the anesthetic at the same time. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So we will normally we do it with a fairly senior registrar so okay. that you, so that you can sort of divide and conquer. But it is important to make sure that the patient is stable and not hypovolemic before you start the chemotherapy. Okay. Mm. Um, because they tend to obviously heat up, vasodilate, and it will unmask any hypovolemia that you have, mm. um, as well as they can sometimes develop a sort of SIRS-like response as well. Okay. Mm. Um, Goodness. So the, okay. So you do need to, you know, have your eye on both things, even if yeah. um, there's a in the room. Okay, all right. Before we go on, I actually wanted to ask, what happens with the liver? So I know that you're obviously directing a lot of this chemotherapy straight into the peritoneal cavity. Is there anything special that you have to do for the liver? I suppose the reason that we're giving it intraperitoneally is to minimise the the toxic side effects. So it's just penetrating about half a centimetre into the abdominal cavity. Mm. And then some of that chemotherapy will then be absorbed into the portal circulation, go through the liver and therefore mm. expose any 
um, hepatic microometastases to the chemotherapy as well. Oh, okay, so you don't have to direct it specifically into the portal circulation. It will automatically happen of its own accord. As, yeah, as far as I'm concerned. Um, Great. Like okay, cool. Awesome. So, Ed, what are some of the key principles for HIPEC surgery, just as a summary so that we can move on to the anesthesia? Uh, yeah, so the, the, the intraperitoneal chemotherapy only penetrates this five millimetres or half mm. a centimetre. Mm. So the cytoreductive surgery part is imperative to ensure that you get the adequate mm. penetration. Mm. Um, the hypothermia in the range of 40, 41 to 43 degrees Celsius, which causes severe destruction of um, the malignant cells. Mm. Um, and inc increases the tissue penetration of the of the drug, okay. and the there's a sort of synergy between the um, combination of the heat and the cytotoxic drugs, which increases the uptake into the malignant cells. Mm. Okay, cool. So look, I've done a little bit of reading, and I know that there are two different techniques for HIPEC in terms of the surgical. So one's open and one's closed. So what, so what exactly does that mean, and which one do you use at your institution? Yeah, so we use the open technique, and they sort of build this. I, I call it a coliseum. It's sort of like a, <laughs> like a stadium of um, plastic around the top of the abdomen with mm. a sort of slit in the top. We put a sort of extractor hose as well to try and extract any fumes that are coming up. Okay. I think a lot of the exposure that the staff get is actually through mm. inhalation, mm. as long as it's you know as long as your skin's covered, obviously. And that's in contrast to the closed system where the abdomen is actually closed and the chemotherapy is inserted sort of under pressure into a, cl into a closed abdomen. Okay. okay. And I think the feeling is there's less exposure, but if it does leak, you have more of a high pressure leak, uh, which could potentially be dangerous. So I suppose there's yeah, there pros and cons of, of each technique. Yeah. Mm, okay. That's really interesting. So moving back to the anesthesia side of things, are there any things that we really need to be aware of when we're performing an anaesthetic for a patient that's getting HIPEC? Yes, I think the first thing to be aware of is the how much the procedure can change depending on the um, extensiveness of the of the tumour. Mm. Um, there's something called the peritoneal cancer index, which is a way of scoring peritoneal tumours and um, assessing the severity, essentially. Each of the nine quadrants of the abdomen are, are divided into, or scored from zero to three, basically, mm. depending on the severity of tumour. Okay. Um, and then the small bowel is divided into four further segments. So you get a score out of 39, which can obviously range from zero to 39, depending mm. on, which gives you an indication of how mm. um, extensive the, the cancer is. If you have someone that's only got a score of you know, five or six, then obviously the amount of peritoneum that's going to be taken, the number of organs that are going to be taken, mm. is going to be quite different to someone with a score of 39 mm. out of yeah. 39. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, when the entire peritoneum may be stripped mm. um, including the diaphragms and the liver um, and you're more likely to have a large bulky tumor that's going to be very difficult to excise mm. i even had one patient where the tumor was so bulky that he had aneurysmal failure for example mm. um, so um, you really need to tailor your anesthetic i suppose it's one of those situations where you need to tailor your anesthetic mm. um, to the clinical condition that the patient has mm. So that would be the the first thing that I would say. Mm. It's a very dynamic surgery, and they're, they're the surgeons are operating over a very large area. Mm. Um, so you end up with a very, especially in the in the more severe cancers, like a very large area of trauma. Mm. It's very difficult um, for them to really have a, a clear idea of um, hemostasis at all times from all areas. So mm. you can have occult bleeding relatively frequently, I would say. And not only that, then you're left with a large sort of raw um, 
area of surgical trauma, which leads to quite large hemodynamic fluctuations, yeah, of course. fluid losses and okay. shifts and, that, and those sort of things. Yeah. In addition, especially when um, the surgeons are up by the liver, they often obstruct IVC flow, and mm. so you can get hemodynamic um, instability based on you know, interruptions to cardiac preload, for example, mm. as well. Yeah, so you have okay. to be aware of what the surgeons are doing at what time. Mm. So it's important to make to ensure that you're, um, you know, on top of all these things, to ensure that the patient has um, remains stable for the duration of the anaesthetic. Mm. And okay. I suppose dealing with any sort of hypothermic treatment, I would expect you're probably going to have big fluctuations in the patient's temperature as well. Is that fair to say? Yeah, correct. And it's interesting because the patients are often in lithotomy position and i don't know if you've got much experience doing long cases in lithotomy mm. but if the patient gets cold it's very difficult to warm them up again yeah mm. that's so true um and i've heard it said well it's okay because we're going to be giving them mm. hot chemotherapy and they'll warm up again which is true but the bleeding happens when the patient's cold yeah. if you've allowed them to become cold and we all know that that's not great for coagulation so i th i think you have to be very careful to ensure that the patient doesn't get cold mm. yeah um not only that but then if the patient's very cold and you put the chemotherapy, the hot chemotherapy into a very cold patient, then the patient acts, acts as like a heat sink and draws the heat out of the chemotherapy. Mm. And you'll find that chemotherapy actually isn't that hot yeah. inside them. So for yeah. part of your circulation time, you're trying to overcome the fact that the patient was cold. Of course. Um, so I try and pay quite fastidious attention to thermoregulation during mm. the cases to ensure the patient doesn't get cold in the first place. Yeah. Um, and then, yes, they do heat up with the chemotherapy, but it's not normally to levels that are particularly dangerous. Okay, um, cool. Normally to about 39. Okay. So we switch off the bear hugger and, um, of course. and cover the patient if okay. we need to. Okay, cool. In some places, they do cool the patient with ice and things like that. Right. We don't okay. do that in our institution. Okay, cool. And do you actually measure the temperature of the chemotherapy in that? Yes, correct. There, yeah, are, there okay. are temperature probes in there yeah. as well, as okay. well as then the core temperature probes in the patient. Yes, yeah. Okay, okay cool. oh, great to know. Okay. So in terms of preoperative assessment, is there anything in particular, obviously we're looking at a large, you know, it's so much like a pelvic exenteration or other large colorectal procedure. Uh, it's a, a large cytoreductive element and then you've got the chemotherapy element to the procedure. Anything specific preoperatively that you're particularly interested in? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think the things I'm most interested in, apart from, you know, the usual um, anesthetic things of um, functional status, mm. um, anemia and all those sort of things the specific ones for the hyperc are obstructive i mean essentially they can come with essentially like a pregnant abdomen because mm. it's so full mm. of fluid ascites tumor mm. um so you have to be you have to assess them carefully for risk of reflux and sort of linked a little bit to that some patients will come um already suffering from nausea and vomiting um, and then the addition of the, the chemotherapy causes a lot of nausea and vomiting mm. afterwards and so i try and assess them for that um, beforehand so that I can give them prophylactic anti-medic normally about half an hour with the, with the exception of dexamethasone which you give at the beginning but the rest of them give them half an hour before the chemo mm. um, if they're not already suffering from a nausea and vomiting beforehand I might put a hyacinth patch on and give them on danzatron okay. and dexamethasone but if they're already suffering from nausea and vomiting or if they're having cisplatin then we normally add in a long-acting um, H 5-HT uh, agonist so palinozotron mm. um, and also we can give them fosoprepitin which is a yeah oh, we've discussed that in a recent episode mm. so in antiemetics yeah that's good um, yeah so that's a sort of a an active thing that we that we do nice and then the other thing is you know um, in terms of pain relief of course they're mm. having a large laparotomy incision and so um, 
we normally offer them an epidural beforehand. Mm. Okay. Um, you can debate whether or not it's a good thing with all the fluid shifts that are happening, but mm. certainly it's good for the patient's pain afterwards. Mm. Yeah, I imagine with particularly large exposures as well, I think I'd want an epidural rather than opioids. So. Yeah, me, me too, mm. me too. <laughs> Fair okay. enough. How do you monitor these patients? So, yeah, probably one of the most difficult things um, about these surgeries is that the patient is fluid responsive always and you end up giving them mm. lots of fluid <laughs> um, and you really wonder whether you're doing the right thing. Mm. Um, I personally use esophageal Doppler um, to try and assess fluid responsiveness because I think it gives a little bit more information regarding cardiac output. Mm. Proponents of it would argue that it's calibrated against the gold standard um, just to give you a little bit more evidence that you're doing the right thing i suppose yeah um because you can really get to the point where you know you just feel like you're pouring fluid into mm. these patients mm. i think as well i do have a lower threshold for giving blood products now because normally you can see that the hemoglobin is trending down and you know with these patients that they will eventually need some blood yeah and it's you know do i give the start the blood now or do, you give, do you give them a few more liters and hemodilate them and then give the blood a bit later yeah fair enough um so i have a low threshold or lower threshold for giving blood and also for giving a cryo as well okay um i would monitor coagulopathy using teg nice. and we okay. do normally hourly gases as well okay cool do you have specific hemoglobin targets that you're aiming for or just trying to maintain them approximately at what they were preoperatively no, just the normal targets that you'd use for any Okay, for any, for any transfusion. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I think we've covered uh, preoperative assessment. We've talked about uh, epidural for analgesia, mm. uh, GA tube, fluid shifts, fluid monitoring, temperature monitoring. Anything else that we're missing from your anaesthetic technique before we delve into the postoperative journey? I mean, the technique I basically use is, is as you mentioned, a either rapid sequence induction or just a standard induction and, and an ET tube. They all need an NG, which is placed and then confirmed by the surgeons. And it normally has to go in down to about 60 or 70 centimetres. Okay. It's off a geal Doppler, as I mentioned before. Um, they get an arterial line. They all get a central line. Mm. And I normally put large um, bore, at least for one 14 gauge cannula um, and so normally a 14 and a 16 essentially. Okay. Mm. Um, if they don't have peripheral targets then I'll put um, a large bore axis in the neck instead. Mm. Um, both of the arms are tucked in the mm -hmm. procedure so you definitely need a sped rip especially because I run Tiva mm. um, just because of the risk of nausea and vomiting afterwards I think that's beneficial. Okay. Of course. Um, I do normally start the epidural during the procedure but normally just on a low rate mm. um, just so that we're not having to give um, too much fluid just to balance out the epidural, the vasodilatation for the mm. epidural. Um, and I normally also run a ketamine infusion okay. um, as well if the patient doesn't have any contraindication. I also run, uh, I think it's important to give your surgeons really good conditions and I don't want the patient coughing or moving, so they also have a muscle relaxant infusion as well. Okay. Um, I think they're the main, the main things really are uh, normally because the epidural is not going to cover the, the wound is large. It won't cover the whole wound unless mm -hmm. you're going to put two epidurals in. So they also get a fentanyl infusion as well normally. Okay. Mm -hmm. Nice. Fantastic. Out of curiosity, where do you put your temp probe? Um, so the, 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 there will be normally one in the bladder, okay. um, but normally I would put one in, in the in the nose or the... Okay. Uh, so just standard placement. You don't have to do anything special. No, no. Cool. I find that the bladder one can be um, inaccurate yeah. when you've got the pelvis open. Yeah, um, so enough. you have to be careful to believe that one sometimes. That's yeah, why I sometimes enough. like to have two in. Yeah, mm -hmm. I like it. Okay, so let's move on and talk about what happens post-operatively. So, Ed, where do these patients typically go? 
So um, all our patients go to the intensive care unit afterwards. Um, our hospital is a little bit unusual because you don't actually have an HDU. Okay. And so there is there are you know a certain proportion of um, high pay patients um, that probably could be woken up at the end and go to an HDU. Mm and extubated just at the end of the surgery. And there's a proportion that probably need a, a period of, you know, monitoring and stability um, mm. to ensure that there are no immediate complications that necessitate return to surgery before they're woken up. Of course. Um, so, but, you know, in our institution, they all go to the intensive care unit generally asleep. Okay. Um, and then the length of stay on intensive care, and um, they are cared for as HDU patients once they're extubated okay. for several days in the intensive care unit, depending on bed availability. Okay. And then they'll be in hospital anything from two weeks oh, wow. to several months. Oh, wow. And I think we had one patient that was in for more than a year because they got various complications afterwards. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, you know, in the extensive surgery, they can end up getting things like gastrectomies and mm. um, you end up having sort of a partial liver resection and things like that oh my goodness um we had one lady where the ng tube actually eroded through the stomach and things oh, like geez. that so oh you, my know, gosh. The, you know you know a lot of patients are uh, just in for two weeks and then they go home but you do occasionally get those mm. ones that get quite severe complications, complications. Yeah. yeah okay uh, and so do you know how, do you have any idea what the outcomes are like do the surgeons ever feedback or you know you chase up the patients and see what the long-term yeah, so, uh, well, so it's thought to improve survival and quality of life afterwards. Um, we have had at least one patient come back for a repeat procedure right. at five okay. years. Wow. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so there is a reasonable five-year survival, but again, it depends on the mm. type of tumour yeah. and it depends on um, whether or not they were able to, to do curative treatment when, when you get in there, yeah. um, what complications the patient gets afterwards mm. as well. And I guess from a quality of life perspective, if there's reduction in tumour burden around the peritoneum, then you're not having to come in for recurrent acidic taps and that sort of thing and hopefully less discomfort in the abdomen, nausea and vomiting, as you mentioned. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, the patients that come in with the, with the high tumour burden are pretty miserable. Mm, um, generally, you know, they can't eat, they have no appetite, they feel sick all the time. Yeah. They're carrying around all, all that, you know, sort of... Mm. Acidic fluid. I mean, the pseudomyx summary is kind of this, you know, jelly stuff that sits in the abdomen. Mm. Oh fluid. So, um, so yeah, there's definitely a quality of life aspect yeah. to, to the surgery yeah. as well. Yeah. Okay. So before we say goodbye, is there anything else we should mention that's worth sort of thinking about when you're preparing to do anesthesia for these sorts of patients? Yeah. Well, it's actually been a bit topical in our institution recently that we realised that not many staff have actually been trained in the handling of chemotherapy. Oh, yes. Um, one of the residents the other day came and, and popped it on the floor. Um, <laughs> Isn't it just pop your purple gloves on? Is there something wrong with that? <laughs> um, so actually what we do, um, it's obviously important to protect staff. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think there is a view amongst our surgical colleagues that mitomycin C isn't that toxic. Okay. Um, but sometimes we are using cisplatin, which is um, mm. much more toxic. And I think it's important to use the correct protocols um, to protect ourselves when we're at work and also ensure that we're communicating well so that other people know the times when they are at risk of being exposed, especially when we're the ones with the, the knowledge and we're the ones that are opening the chemo and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so we expect staff to wear N95 masks when the chemotherapy is open and being circulated. We do have the special purple um, cytotoxic <laughs> gloves and we change all the bags to purple yeah. Yeah. And, all, and all that sort of thing. And then the uh, medical staff that are you know, at the abdomen yeah. um, 
sort of mixing the, ke- the chemotherapy, mm. um, as it were. Um, they're wearing fluid impervious gowns as well as sort of uh, shoe covers. Okay. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, the sort of um, extra gloves. Mm. Halfway through the chemo or every half an hour, those gloves are changed. Mm. Um, everyone must also wear eye protection as well. Of course. Um, so we are working at um, having some sort of training module available for our staff so that the chemotherapy no longer gets put on the floor. <laughs> Good to know. Good we laughed to stop us from crying. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Ed, look, thank you so much for joining us today on Deep Breaths. It's been a great discussion about a topic that neither of us knew yeah. a huge amount about to begin with. We also have uh, something else. Every episode of Deep Breaths with a guest we have, we ask, what have you learned in anesthesia this week? Could be this week, could be last week. Uh, but have you learned anything in anesthesia that you wish to share with us? Oh, what I've learned might be a little bit controversial, but um, <laughs> we love controversial. Bring, bring it, it, bring it. I've been trying to master paravertebral blocks using ultrasound in real time, and I've decided that I'm probably never going to do it. Oh no! <laughs> you sound like me. I was teaching one the other day, and I was like, oh, I just mark it, and then I just do it. Blind. Yeah, oh I just gosh. think it's it's just safer in my hands. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Look, practice makes perfect. You never know what will happen over the next five to ten years. We can work on our ultrasound guided paravertebrals. Right. I love it. All right, look, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Thanks we for really having me again. Look, thanks again, Ed. As always, listeners, you can contact us on our email address at deepbreathspod at gmail.com. If you have a topic you want covered, an idea for an interviewee, or you'd like to be interviewed yourself, please get in touch. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.